This podcast from Teacher Magazine is supported by the Quality Teaching Academy. The Quality Teaching Academy empowers teachers to enrich student learning. The Academy delivers high-impact professional development, including the evidence-backed quality teaching rounds, and supports a community of educators with a shared vision for quality teaching. Visit qtacademy.edu.au. Thanks for downloading this podcast from Teacher Magazine. I'm Dominique Russell. In this episode in our school improvement series, I'm joined by Vanessa Rowland, Portia Rodell, and Karen Mercia, who have recently published an examination of a two-year pilot study which encouraged schools to actively try to reduce their carbon emissions. Their study and resulting report, titled Schools, an Untapped Opportunity for a Carbon-Neutral Future, assessed which actions proved to be most effective, considering both the cost involved and the outcome achieved. The study came about after Vanessa Rowland and her colleagues conducted the two-year pilot program, the Low Carbon Schools Pilot Program, between 2015 and 2017. Fifteen schools were involved in this, and then-PhD candidate Portia Rodell decided to investigate further as part of her PhD research. Thirteen of the original 15 schools jumped on board for this further examination, and it's the examination of these schools which we'll discuss today. Alongside Vanessa and Portia, we're joined by Karen, who was a supervisor for this research of Portia's. As we'll discuss in the episode, their report reveals that 60% of the actions employed by schools involved no cost at all. Some of these actions included things like using less paper, improving recycling habits, obtaining quotes for solar panels, and many other initiatives. The schools worked as a network throughout the pilot, meaning they could access each other's energy consumption data, which proved to be particularly useful. All of this work led to the development of Climate Clever, Vanessa Rowland's organisation, and specifically their app, which helps schools, businesses, and homes reduce their carbon emissions. Let's kick off the conversation by hearing from Vanessa, Portia and Karen, who will explain a little bit about themselves and their involvement in this study. So my name is Vanessa Rowland and I'm the CEO and founder of Climate Clever. Um, Climate Clever is a platform that helps schools, households and businesses to reduce their carbon footprint uh, and save money on utility bills. And I'm also an adjunct researcher at Curtin University Sustainability Policy Institute. Uh, the genesis of um, the whole research project actually came from um, myself and a colleague helping to certify the first carbon neutral school in Australia back in 2012. And that was really the, yeah, the inspiration behind um, this project. And um, I'll let uh, my colleagues talk about uh, more about the research side. My name is Portia O'Dell. I'm actually currently director at the Cities Power Partnership, which is Australia's largest climate action network for local governments. Um, but this study was actually part of my PhD research project, and I looked at the barriers, enablers, and strategies schools use to reduce their carbon footprint and how students could influence their families around low carbon living. I'm actually currently an associate professor in STEM education research and teaching at Curtin University and um, and also um, the ch- a chief investigator on a national centre of excellence for the digital child. So for me, being um, a part of this project has been um, an amazing opportunity, um, both to be a mentor and a, a coach as a supervisor through a PhD process. 
um, but also through my own personal passion for sustainability. I think sustainability um, and educating for sustainability is about where we're going to start with transformation. This report looks over the pilot study that was undertaken between 2015 and 2017. It involved 13 schools in Western Australia, and here Portia shares what kinds of schools were involved in the pilot and how these schools were selected to participate. Yes, so the, the schools were selected. We basically invited all, uh, all schools that were um, involved in the Low Carbon Schools pilot program to participate in the research. So there was 15 schools in total that participated in the program. Um, we invited all of them to participate in the research and 13 agreed, which was great. Um, we had schools from six different council areas. Uh, all schools except one primary school were government funded. Um, we had four secondary and nine primary, and the size of school was quite varied. So we had, for example, one small pr uh, primary school with just 93 students, all the way up to a school, a primary school in the outer suburbs that had over 600 students and was growing so rapidly that had over 14 transportable classrooms on site um, during the time we were working with them. And our secondary schools also varied a lot in size, um, with the smallest high school having around 850 students, but also we had a very large outer suburb um, secondary school with over 1,700 students and growing also had well over a dozen transportables. So we had quite a, a variety of different um, schools that were on board from different locations, sizes, and carbon footprints, which made um, the study really interesting and varied. Perhaps most excitingly, the research team found that of the actions these schools implemented throughout the pilot, 60% of them involved zero cost and a further 10% of the initiatives were classified as low cost, which means they cost around $1,500 or less. Here, Portia and Vanessa share some of the most popular and the most successful actions that the schools employed at zero cost. Um, yeah, so one of the most successful actions that schools did that involved no cost was actually a switch off protocol for the end of school day, weekends and over school holidays. So when we looked at the school's energy consumption during the school holiday periods, both before and after they implemented a switch off protocol, which basically just meant someone was in charge of making sure all the lights and computers were off and nothing was running. Um, that the schools who implemented this protocol, which was 10 of the schools we were working with, uh, saved, reduced their energy use by an average of 12%. Um, and the financial savings that were associated with that um, varied because of, you know, some schools actually had rising energy costs and others um, had just a bit of a different context. But that's a good example of the type of initiative that was definitely the most successful initiative in terms of carbon emissions um, and a reduction in costs and, and um, in consumption, and uh, which is great because it was actually quite a simple thing to do as long as someone was taking charge and leading the way. Following on from the research, um, we were just featured on Fight for Planet A, our, our Climate Clever program, and one of our more recent schools um, did a similar switch-off protocol as Portia just mentioned, um, and they actually ended up saving 30% on the utility bills um, in four months. So it was, it was sort of um, around November, December or to, to February when they went back to school, and um, that 30% was uh, equate, equated to a $5,000 savings for that school, and again, all no-cost actions that they did and um, that was a significant savings. That, that school, I think, had 200 students. So that was, um, you know, uh, probably funded the whole library budget um, for the year. A few other things that we looked at were um, counting various appliances. And we, and, uh, we had, um, we, gave, we set out challenges every month to say, go, everyone go and count how many fridges, for example, you have in your school. And um, one of the schools came back, you know, the following day and said, oh my gosh, we've got um, one fridge per 2.4 staff members. Is that a lot of fridges? 
um, which, you know, we didn't quite know ourselves because we didn't have the data on it. But um, we did have a, a colleague who was like, that sounds like a lot of fridges. Why do you have so many? And that prompted a you know, further investigation of um, looking into why they did. And it turned out a whole bunch had been donated by the community. So they were old, inefficient fridges. Um, and that led the school to start, you know, getting rid of these clunky old energy guzzlers. And that's, yeah, just another example of um, no, you know, no cost actions that they took, um, which helped to dramatically reduce their, their carbon footprint. But there was there were so many other things like that um, that didn't involve any cost at all, just um, really a review of, of what's going on in the school. The uh, schools working together as a network, I think, was a part of the success for the program because it enabled them to compare their, their costs and their consumption around the utilities and their utility bills. And so that highlighted for one of the schools that they actually had um, pipe leakage, um, water loss, gas leakage, and that enabled them to repair the leak and reduce their, their consumption of those utilities. While not feasible for all schools across Australia, some of the low-cost initiatives employed by the schools in the pilot could be a worthwhile exercise for some communities. Here, Portia and Vanessa explain some of the ways money was invested to reduce emissions in schools. A lot of schools um, started to investigate the uh, flow restrictors in their um, to install on their faucet taps and bathrooms, um, and that's a, a relatively low-cost initiative that. Um, under a couple grand easily can do depending on how many faucets you have. One school um, decided to replace um, not all but most of their faucets and they saw a 75% reduction in their energy usage which was pretty remarkable. Um, and some of the other things that schools started to do was obviously changing to LEDs upfront costs if you tried to do that across the entire school is quite a costly expense but a lot of schools started to do that over time so they looked at implementing a plan of how they can start to transition to LEDs um, as they blow or as they need to be replaced so that was another example um, we did encourage schools to focus on changing their external floodlights in their parking lots because those are very energy intensive and they do cost um, a couple of hundred dollars to replace but the um, energy savings associated that with that are quite large um, and in addition some some schools also did a energy or water audit um, and these were provided at a subsidized cost um, from some of the program partners that partnered with the low carbon schools program and as Karen mentioned as well, sometimes just looking at the data is, is incentive enough to find some of these leaks. So some, some schools also invested in um, more sort of time of use um, data loggers for, for electricity and, and um, water uh, and even gas. Um, this, this was actually another low cost initiative, but some schools found that their gas pilot lights were being lit a couple of months before they actually needed to use the gas heaters, for example. And um, just even the, the pilot lights were consuming so much gas that I think it ended up being about $30 a day um, that they saved just from um, not to, you know, switching those gas pipelines on so early. There's just another example of, I guess, the, um, uh, the benefit of investigating your bills because, um, you know, the, the way that the water consumption in Western Australia works, um, and I know it's different for each state, is that they are charged um, a, a fee per uh, kiloliter of water, but also they're charged a, a fee for each fixture they have in their school. So that includes urinals and toilets. And just by investigating um, and looking at their bill, one school saw that they were being charged for too many toilets than they actually had on campus. So changing that and amending that with the Water Corporation, for example, saved them 2000 a year just alone. And that all that took was just looking at their bill and in querying you know, making sure that the data was right and just asking questions. 
Throughout the pilot study, the research team were measuring the emission reductions recorded by each school as a result of the actions that they'd taken. Importantly, it was decided that the most appropriate method for this would be to measure emission reduction on a per-student basis. So if you're an educator or a school leader listening to this podcast and you're wanting to measure the success of sustainability actions you're taking in your own school context, is measuring on a per-student basis the best way forward? Portia explains here why it provides the most insight. Yeah, so measuring on a per-student basis can provide some really useful insights because when you're looking at comparing schools, schools can be so vastly different. So one school could be very large, have very few students. Another school could be quite small in terms of um, total square meters, but have uh, two or three times more students. And so because a lot of schools, you know, schools receive their funding on a per student basis, calculating emissions and and utility costs um, and utility consumption on a per student basis can provide just that level of comparison that both levels the playing field for allowing you to compare yourself with other schools, but also provides, I guess, a bit more context of how you can interpret what that means for your school. If you're looking at, if you receive your funding on a per school, per student basis, then I think um, measuring that emission on a per-student basis also um, aligns nicely. And what we found um, by doing this analysis was the data would tell us very different things. If we compared two schools purely on total carbon emissions or purely on total electricity consumption, that told a very different story than if we looked at it on a per-student basis. Um, And it allowed you to uncover more complexity within the data and and get a deeper understanding. In in that first pilot, we saw that one of the schools um, more than doubled in size, more than doubled its students' um, size over over that two-year period and therefore um, had all these demountables or transportable buildings um, plonked on site. So, of course, we saw energy consumption rise in that school. But looking at it on that per-student basis, that's when you could start to see, okay, actually the the carbon emissions are coming down on a per-student basis, but, of course, they're going up um, in an overall capacity or in in an overall sense. We know that many young people are passionate about sustainability. So aside from the outstanding results for emission reduction and decline in utility bills that this study has had for the participating schools, what has been the impact of these initiatives on students? Here, Karen describes how this study has provided an opportunity for students to build on their 21st century skills, and Vanessa reflects on the intergenerational influence that's been observed. Well, we surveyed 294 parents um, who were in these schools and and one third of those actually reported that they noticed a change in their their child's attitude and and behaviours around low carbon living within the first 12 months of the program. So half these parents actually attributed this change in their children's attitude to what was happening in the school. Uh, There were some parents who said this was consistent with their family's um, values and, and what they were doing but we were seeing a significant shift in behaviours from what was happening because of what was happening in the school. So 30% of the parents actually said their child had um, influenced their household practices, that they as parents and and the the family unit were changing the way they were living. They were taking on board um, more low carbon living practices. So yeah, the children were actually influencing practices in the home. Then from a, the, in terms of the impact on students, um, we also saw that there was this um, real building of their 21st century learning skills, which is um, of in- increasing importance and awareness amongst teachers um, in schools these days. We were seeing the students questioning, they were thinking creatively about how they could um, problem solve, solve some of the challenges that were being presented around the sustainability issues. So there was a lot of collaboration, teamwork, and they were developing really good interpersonal communication skills as well. 
So they're using these skills to, to influence other people to act more sustainably. So influencing their family members, um, influencing other, their peers within the school by talking about the sort of things they were learning. So they were speaking out and having an impact on others at home, but also in the school itself. Um, and they were using a whole range of strategies for, for communicating. One of the students actually said that um, in her talking to family members, um, she was telling her siblings not to be wasteful, uh, monitoring their you know, use of light switches, switching off, not running water taps and so on. But one of the students actually went as far as creating a PowerPoint and did a presentation to her family about what she'd been learning um, around low carbon living and the initiatives that could be taken. So we saw this as um, this, you know, intergenerational influence was being supported by the use of technologies as well. And that digital literacy that was a, an added component of the learning experience that the students were having. So the students were being creative with their technologies and also they were being supported in their practices and their thinking by the Climate Clever app and their use of the app. That was certainly one of the key reasons um, for the um, this overall research right from the beginning was this was to document and see how that intergenerational change can play out in the school because we we have heard so much um, anecdotal evidence over the years that kids do influence parents but this was a particularly I guess around marketing and and um, pester power for you know chocolates and toys and stuff so this was a really nice way to see how it could work um, in a well the same way more positive aspect around sustainability and climate change and I think the other really exciting thing that happened around the same time as our pilot program were the student strikes for climate action um, they really started to pop up and emerge around 2017 2018 towards the end of our pilot and then as we've progressed into the, the climate clever program it's yeah it's been um really important i think to empower the students to realize that they can take action themselves you know it's very important that they can go out there and, and demand action from our leaders our you know politicians and adults but i think it's also equally as important to be able to say but hey you can do something in your school and in your home as well the steps taken by the schools at the very beginning of the study to decide how they were going to reduce their emissions was an important part of their overall success. In the report, the authors write about how the development of SMART goals, and therefore the development of really specific targets, was a particularly useful activity. So, yeah, so certainly having SMART goals is really important. Um, I think where, where this study um, led us to was the fact that there aren't that many, um, I guess, resources available to help schools to really measure and monitor and, and reduce, um, hence why we ended up um, creating the Climate Clever program from this research to enable schools to really um, easily plug that data in somewhere um, so they can start to um, understand. There's a mantra in this field, you can't manage what you don't measure, so you have to have that sort of baseline um, data. So. What we used in that initial pilot was Excel spreadsheets. To, um, we, we provided them to all the schools and they entered their data into the Excel spreadsheets and that was how we, we got that data together um, and Google Docs to provide them with um, ideas for actions. That's now all being translated into um, our app and that's this is what we're now providing um, to schools across the country. Um, I, th I think it's also worth mentioning that, there is, that up until to date there hasn't been a national program for collecting all this data and enabling these schools to compare um, and work together. So, um, yeah, the, the first, I guess the first step is to, is to pull together your bills and, and that data to understand what you're consuming as a school. Uh, and then, 
Um, well, what we've done with our Climate Clever platform is we've we've learned from this study in this pilot, so that counting of fridges and the counting of toilets, as Portia said, um, we thought that that's actually really interesting data as well. So let's let's actually collect that. So the um, the Climate Clever app now enables the students to go around with an iPad, for example, and count all those different types of appliances and how many lights they have in the school um, to start to identify where they could start to reduce or you know do retrofits and upgrades. Um, and then, of course, uh, putting in actions in place. And again, we always want to encourage schools to look at those and really explore those no cost actions, because I think one of the again, the inspirations behind this was was to provide schools with a strategic approach to to reducing their carbon footprint. And I'd often get asked, you know, by schools, you know, that had a worm farm, whether, you know, what they should do next, should they do an LED lighting upgrade? And um, I think as Portia mentioned as well, you know, the lighting upgrades can be quite expensive if you do it across the whole school. So that while the worm farm might be $150, the LED lighting upgrade might be $150,000. So being able to um, look and explore and, and find and implement those no cost actions first, which can save you some money. And then you can use those savings to invest in further retrofits. And we found through that pilot that quite a few of the principals were willing to silo that, those savings out and use them as a, you know, a new green or sustainability fund to fund some of those um, upgrades, which obviously then creates more savings and further, yeah, further financial opportunities for the school. Have an action plan in place where you identify what your goal is, set yourself some targets, um, and then celebrate those small achievements a, a, along the way. Um, and I think there's opportunity here as you're planning and being intentional with what you're doing is to to seek out and make connections. So find those partners in the community that might actually be able to support the actions and initiatives in the school. So that might actually be your PNC, um, it might be some um, business owners within your local community who can help the schools with expertise, perhaps resources, or even actually getting quite hands-on and getting involved in the programs. And within that action, how can we then connect these programs into the curriculum within the school. So how do we actually get Climate Clever and sustainability actions and programs as a core component of curriculum where the science and the maths and the technology learning is actually in integrated meaningfully into these amazing sustainability actions. And, and on that note, um, so we have, uh, again, followed on from the research that we did ask um, all of our 15 schools, you know, what they would like to see, you know, if this program continued and certainly curriculum resources were one of the key things that they all asked about. So we have um, developed curriculum resources for the Climate Clever program as well. Um, and Karen and I are actually also now supervising another uh, master student who's now looking at um, working with and integrating those um, curriculum resources in, in three schools in Perth as well. So it's sort of following on from Portia's research, but with a bit more of a curriculum focus now. And finally, here Karen discusses the implications of this study for school communities across the country, and in particular, what principles should be taking away from their research findings. I think the first major takeaway for school principals is just how do it, doable it is to take action at a whole school level to actually make a difference around sustainability. Um, and as we, we know, and principals would very much be aware that sustainability is actually a cross-curricular priority. So it is something that is relevant to every member of the school community and it's a very much cross-curricular everybody's business. Um, so I think, too, to take away from this a learning from this project is that it could require some thinking differently. 
you know, approaching the, the, ped, the pedagogy and the teaching practices a little bit differently. So this can be sometimes a bit of a challenge, um, but there's an opportunity here to support and coach uh, students to take action for themselves, uh, teachers to think differently about their approach to their, their planning and their classroom actions. So supporting students to be problem solvers and to actually be the action taker or even the champion of the initiatives um, in the schools. I think one of the other major takeaways for me and um, that I think is, has relevance to the, the school leader is that these sort of changes um, don't happen automatically. Uh, it requires intention and taking, taking action. And it can take a little bit of time and it can even take some resources. Um, but as the examples that have come out of this, spending a little bit of money um, can actually mean that you save money in the longer term. And so the project becomes self-sustaining uh, in that it can pay for itself with the savings, with the utility bills and so on. Another important takeaway, I think, from this study is the importance of having someone who champions the project and champions the initiatives. So that may be a school principal, but it may not be. It may be a distribution of that leadership and responsibility to, to teachers in school. It's really about identifying where is the passion for the movement um, and who's going to champion and drive that and keep the momentum in the actions. So sustainability and carbon reduction projects can actually create opportunities for collaboration and peer support and, and peer learning uh, for educators and professional learning. So thinking differently about the approaches that we take, empowering others and really being focused on, you know, taking that first step, creating action that will bring about a difference. Uh, what we're finding now with our program as well is, is exactly as Karen said, there's always a different um, sort of uh, champion in the schools. And for some of our current schools, we have like the business manager, for example, really taking the lead and loving all the numbers um, that are coming out of um, our, our app and the, the program. Um, but yeah, other times you have a, a, t a passionate teacher or, or a principal that's really um, creating that sort of top down approach to say, engaging the whole school along the way. So it's, it is um, fascinating seeing um, where, where that excitement and um, yeah, engagement and passion comes from. Um, the other thing I, I'd say would have an implication for the study and on the school leaders and um, particularly for, for teachers um, is, is being able to use the real life data that comes from the program and from um, you know, looking at all the consumption data you know, that provides so many maths opportunities and science opportunities. Um, and it means that you know, kids are learning with that, that tangible um, data in front of them instead of just an example in a textbook that sort of doesn't feel like it's that relevant. So uh, I think there's, the, there's a huge opportunity there for schools. Vanessa's has raised a good point there about the cross-curricular nature of the learning that can go on. So the Climate Clever um, Practice and App itself and the, the um, learning programs that came from that, they really are STEM-based learning experiences. So it's, real, as it's a real-life problem. It's something that students care about and passionate about and they have it there in front of them. And in that context, they're learning their science, they're learning their maths, and they can even create those technology type solutions to the problems. So it's real world, real world learning for the students and, and STEM in practice. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast channel on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud, so you can be notified of any new episodes. While you're there, we'd love for you to rate and review the podcast in your podcast app. You've been listening to a podcast from Teacher Magazine, supported by the Quality Teaching Academy.
Academy members can access discounted professional development, including the rigorously tested quality teaching rounds, as well as a range of other great resources, videos, research, and more. Get priority access to research and resources at qtacademy.edu.au.